0: Right now, Father, we do pray for Lola. We just pray that you would just um, minister to her and be with the surgeons tomorrow, and as they uh, do surgery on her feet, that she would recover and heal quickly and properly, that she would know that you're there with her, that you'd bring her comfort, and and um, Lord, just minister her to her, and um, Father, that she would get back on her feet as quickly as possible. She would know that you are working and showing yourself strong on her behalf. So, Lord, we, we will be there in spirit uh, when she has surgery and lifting her up, and we thank you for her. And, and um, Lord, we thank you for Donna, and we just pray that you would, Lord, minister to her and strengthen her as she's been a part of this fellowship for so long. And, um, Lord, I just pray that you would just um, bring comfort to her and her family, that you would minister to her heart and make her heart stronger. And Lord, that, um, that you would just, uh, Lord, um, just show yourself strong on her behalf. And Lord, that um, she would know that you're there and that you are touching her and bringing her to recovery. And Lord, so we lift up all those who are perhaps sick or not feeling well. I know that there are people that come into this place tonight that there are difficulties that they're going through and difficult circumstances. And Lord, We thank you that you're a God that sees us. And just as you're going to remind the children of Israel in the text that we're going to read tonight, that you were with them, your presence, as you brought them out of that iron furnace that is Egypt, that you're with us, and Lord, you see us, and you desire to minister to us. So do that as we take in your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now remember at this point in the book of Deuteronomy that there is Moses... (laughs) with the two and a half to three million people that are going to go into the promised land. And they've already defeated the king of Heshbon and the king of Bashan and Og and Shaihan, as we saw. And it's going to be Gad and Reuben, those two tribes, as well as half of the tribe of Manasseh, that are going to take the inheritance on the east side of the Jordan River. But they are yet to cross the Jordan River and go into the promised land, the, the land of the Canaanites, and take that land that God has given to them. So physically they're ready to go. But spiritually Moses is preparing them in this last address. The book of Deuteronomy records his last address to them. And so he's going to be giving them the law once again. We know that Deuteronomy in the Subtuagint means the second law. It isn't a different set of laws that he's given to them. But he's going to be repeating to them again what was given to them at Mount Sinai there from the mountain. And so he's been telling them of their history of the last 40 years coming out of Egypt, how their fathers were disobedient, and they had a hardness of heart. They did not go into the promised land. So the wilderness ended up being a large graveyard for them. For 40 years in totality, it was that generation that came out of Egypt 20 years and above, as it would be the Lord that said, that ended up dying out there in the wilderness. So now you have a new generation that's poised to go in. They've already seen the strong hand of the Lord defeat those two kings of the Amorites. And we know that they are beginning to to have that faith being built in them, that he's going to do the same thing when they go into the promised land. But again, they needed an official reading of the law. When they get this, we're going to see that Deuteronomy is going to end with Moses going up on Mount Nebo, And there he will be uh, shown the promised land supernaturally, as the Lord will show him all in the north and south and east and west. The Lord had said, Moses, you're not going to go into the promised land. We're going to see this again mentioned as we continue in chapter 4 here. But Moses, I'm going to show you the land. And Moses, dying on Mount Nebo on the east side of the Jordan River, we know that the children of Israel would then mourn for about 30 days, and then they're going to go into the promised land. When they cross the Jordan River, the first thing that's going to take place when you read the book of Joshua is they're going to be circumcised. There needed to be a cutting away of the flesh before there was victory in the spirit. So again, the Lord is preparing them spiritually for what is about to happen. He's growing them in their faith. He wants them to walk by faith, not by sight. Because if they walk by sight, what's going to happen? They're going to see Anakin, aren't they? They're going to see the giants that they were so fearful, that is their father's, before and they would not go into the promised land hey there's anakins that are in the land there's giants and they have walls that go to heaven and they're everywhere and so we can't go into the promised land and the lord has given them a specific promise that i'm going to keep my promise that i gave to abraham isaac and jacob and that is i'm going to give you this land and the covenant that i made with them i'm going to keep so i'm going to drive out those inhabitants and i'm going to give you a good land Now, one of the themes that we see here told to us in Deuteronomy that we're going to see over and over and over again is that he's going to say, you have seen my faithfulness in bringing you out of Egypt. You know that I was with you in providing for you. Don't forget what I have done for you in bringing you to the promised land. Don't forget when you go into the promised land and take it that I've given this land to you as an inheritance. And you're going to understand that truly I am the Lord. There is none other. And don't forget me when you are blessed. Keep my statutes. Keep my commandments. That is a theme that is written over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy where we're going to say, yes, I get it. I understand it. But it's interesting that Paul the Apostle in the book of Philippians that we will see that he will say that it's not tedious for me to write the same things to you again. But for you it is saved. And it is Peter that would say in his epistle that I will not be negligent to remind you of these things, though you be established in them. In other words, you and I as, as human beings that have a tendency to sin because this flesh is still a part of us, we need to be reminded continually, constantly, that the Lord desires for us to walk in obedience. And one of the things that we will see as we move into the book of Philippians on Sunday mornings, again, the whole theme is joy. Joy. In a little preview of what we're going to talk about. When Paul the Apostle was in Acts chapter 20 making his way to Jerusalem, he would say to the Ephesian elders that he was addressing for the last time, that I know that chains and tribulations await me because the Holy Spirit has testified that to me. But I don't count my life dear to myself that I may finish my race with joy for the ministry that has been given to me by the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's was one. That when he did his ministry, even though he went through difficulties and he knew that chains and tribulations awaited him, that he was going to run his race with joy. And of course, as we saw in the book of Hebrews not long ago in chapter 12, that we as believers, that there's a race that's set before us, isn't it? And we are to run that race with endurance. We know from the scriptures that the Lord desires for us to run that race with joy. He desires for us in our journey, in our life, to take us into the promised land. And again, As we talk about going into the promised land, there are many pastors and teachers I've heard that it speaks of heaven. It doesn't speak of heaven. It speaks of that abundant life that Jesus spoke of when he said, I came to give you life and life abundantly, that life of blessing, that life of peace and joy and direction and all of that that the Lord has for us. And one of the keys to have a joy that we will see in the book of Philippians, because here is Paul, he's chained to a Roman guard, and he's still talking about the joy of the Lord. He did finish his race with joy, as you see in Second Timothy, for Timothy, my departure is at hand, and I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. He would minister with joy in his heart, and a joy is much richer than happiness, as I've said to you before, because happiness is dependent upon circumstances. Joy is something that you can have even in the hard times and difficult times. Just that sense of rest in the Lord, that sense of peace in the Lord, that sense of I'm trusting the Lord that he's going to do whatever he needs to do and desires to do in my life as I just trust in him and are established in his promises. That's what abundant life is all about. And so the Lord desires for us to move into that abundant life. And just as we see in the book of Joshua that we're going to see when we get finished with Deuteronomy here, They go into the promised land and there's going to be battles for them, aren't there? And there will be battles for us because the scripture says that we will endure hardships as a soldier of Jesus Christ. There will be setbacks and difficulties for them. But God was faithful to work for them and he'll be faithful for you and I. So he's preparing them and he says, now remember that I brought your fathers to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, and God spoke to them. And the commandments were given to them, and those commandments, Ten Commandments, he wrote them on two tablets of stone. When we get to chapter 5 here in just a few minutes, we're going to see the Ten Commandments once again reviewed. So let's pick it up at verse 15. Again, he says that you are to be one that I'm going to teach you the statutes and the judgments that you might observe them and the land which you cross over to possess. Verse 15 of chapter 4, take careful heed to yourself, for you saw no form when you, um, the Lord spoke to you, at Horeb, and and that is Mount Sinai, of course, out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And so we see here, that what he is saying to them is beware of idolatry. Don't embrace it. Don't get involved with those gods of the Canaanites which are false. Don't make carved images before you. He goes on and says, verse um, 19, And take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all the hosts of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and to serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to his people and inheritance, as you are this day. Don't get involved with carved images. Don't worship those false idols. Don't look up to the stars and to the moons and to the sun and begin to worship them as well. And of course, it would be later on in their history, particularly after the days of Solomon, that when the nation split, that they would be involved in idol worship and false gods. We know from the book of Isaiah, from the book of Jeremiah, that they had uh, those idols that were um, dedicated to the sun god and to the moon god. So they We're into all of that. And so they did not take heed. And one of the things, again, that we will see repeated over and over again is take heed. Take heed to yourselves. Take heed to yourselves. And in that, what the Lord is saying is not focus on yourself, but take heed. Make sure you're paying attention. Don't forget these things. Make sure that these things get down into your heart. And we know that in the New Testament, oftentimes, we are told to take heed to ourselves. I can't help but think about when Paul was writing to Timothy and giving Timothy instructions. Of course, Timothy being the the young disciple of Paul. And Paul would say, oh, Timothy, take heed to yourself and then minister to the flock of God. In other words, you pay attention to yourself spiritually, that you're staying close to the Lord, that you're walking in obedience, that you are doing those things that the Lord would have you to do. And as you are doing well spiritually, individually, then you can minister to others. And that's where it begins with you and I, to be able to minister to others, whether it's with our children or in discipling others or teaching others or me as a pastor, that we need to take heed to ourselves, that we need to make sure that we're healthy spiritually, that we're staying close to the Lord, that we're walking in obedience, that we are ones that we are looking to the Lord and continuing to abide in His love. And so as we do that, then we're going to be effective in being able to minister to our children, be effective in ministering to small groups, to the children in the children's ministry, to home fellowships, whatever it might be. Me as a pastor, if we take heed to ourselves, first of all. So it's important for us. To learn what's being said here as we go through the scriptures and then not only learn it, but get it down into our hearts. And one of the things that we see that people will say that the book of Deuteronomy, it's all about the law. It's all about the law. But there's some very key things here that we're going to make application. I understand that we're not under the law. We saw in the book of Hebrews that we don't come to Mount Sinai. We come to Mount Zion, don't we? And that's what the writer was saying. You guys, you Hebrew believers there in the first century, don't put yourselves back under the law. You come to Mount Zion. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. um, And we are under grace, but we are still called to walk in holiness, to walk in obedience is what we are told to do. But the key is our hearts, isn't it? And here in Deuteronomy, that's going to be told to them, that you would keep my commandments with your hearts and in your hearts. And so that's one of the things that we need to keep in mind as we go through this. Take heed to ourselves, where are our hearts with the Lord and our hearts having the things of God that are planted in our hearts. In verse 21, furthermore, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes and swore that I would not cross over the Jordan and that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. But I must die in this land. I must not cross over the Jordan. But you shall cross over and possess that good land. Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So Moses recounts, again, how he was disobedient at Kadesh. He struck the rock when he was supposed to speak to the rock. We've talked about that quite extensively, Numbers chapter 20. And he was not allowed to go into the promised land. But I notice here in verse 24, For your Lord, your God, is a consuming fire. Now again, making reference to the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, he would take this quote here from Deuteronomy chapter 4. And as he was talking about giving that warning to the Hebrew believers that God is a God of judgment, that those who reject the gospel message that there is going to be eternal consequences for that, for God is a consuming fire. And so we understand, as we look at the Scriptures, the goodness and the grace and the love and the provision of our Lord. But we also know that our Lord is a God of judgment and a God of justice, and that He will judge sin. And those who come along who reject Him, reject the gospel message, there is eternal consequences. God is a consuming fire. So speaking about the judgment of God, And there will be judgment and sin will be judged but we also know that here he says that god is a jealous god now i want us to understand what is being said there because i remember um, a while back hearing oprah winfrey talk about how she was in sunday school and when she was a little girl and she heard the sunday school teacher say that god is a jealous god and she didn't like that and that turned her off to christianity She didn't like that because why would God be jealous of other religions and other gods? And that's not what's being said here. We know that the Lord is saying, make no carved images before me. Have no other gods before me. He's saying that because he's going to go on and say that I alone in God, there is none other. There is no other God beside me. And that's the message given throughout the scriptures, that he is the one true God. So he's not jealous of those other gods who cannot hear or smell or speak or or see' not jealous of them, but he's jealous for you, is what's being said. And what he is saying here to them is that I love you guys so much. I brought you out of bondage and out of slavery of Egypt. And I brought you through the promised land. I'm going to give you this land that is a good land that you're going to possess. And, and don't forget about me when you go into the promised land. And I am a jealous God. I'm jealous for you. I don't want you to go after that which is going to... Put you in sin and, and bind you up and cause you to go into captivity and that which is false. False worship and false gods who can do nothing for you. I love you so much. I'm jealous for you is what he is saying. I am not a wimpy God that's going to be pushed around with your own ideas and your own ways. So here are my statutes and here are my commands to follow after me. And it's true with you and me. He is jealous for us. He doesn't want us to go off into sin. He doesn't want us to just come up with our own ideas of what God is about. He declares who he is in his word, in his ways. And we are to take that and believe it, and again, that we are to walk in his ways, that understand that he alone is God, and he's jealous for us, and he does not want us to get involved in sin, or that which is false, or that which is going to harm us. He wants us to follow after him, because he loves us so much he wants to bless us. And he wants what's best for us. And he wants us to see him working on our behalf and to have that abundant life that he has for us. So verse 25, When you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land and act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve God's, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear, nor eat nor smell. Now, after we get done with the book of Joshua, they enter into, for about 300 years, the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, what happens is, is that they go after those Canaanite gods, they find themselves in bondage to those, um, you know, the Moabites and the the Canaanites that come against them. And then the days of the judges would end at the time that Samuel, the last of the judges, would anoint Saul as the new king of Israel. So they would have a time where the days of, of Saul being replaced by David and then Solomon and then Rehoboam, after that time, that then they would enter into that time where, again, they went into idol worship. And it would be those, and here is the Lord prophesying, saying that when you have, when you beget children and the grandchildren and you grow old and then they act corruptly make carved images in the form of anything, you do evil in the sight, you're going to go off into captivity. So the Lord knew what was going to happen in their history. And we know that the house of Israel in 720 B.C., would go off into captivity by the Assyrians. And then in 605 B.C., the house of Judah down south, because the nation had split after Rehoboam, they would go off into captivity by the Babylonians. And so here he is saying that you're going to go into those lands and and you're going to be scattered. We also know that it would be after the crucifixion of Jesus that in 70 A.D. that the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem and the second temple, and then the Jews were scattered amongst the nation. And they would not have a homeland for 2,000 years. But here's the fascinating thing, verse 29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart, with all your soul. When you are in distress, and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God, He will not forsake you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers, which he swore to them. Here is a prophetic utterance here given for the latter days. In the latter days, when you call upon me, I'm going to hear you. Now we know that what's going to happen as the Lord, as you read the Old Testament, he told them that they would be scattered among the nations. He would talk of those prophecies made Not not only would they go off into captivity by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians, but there was going to be a time when they would be scattered amongst all the nations, and that happened in 70 A.D. For 2,000 years, as they were scattered amongst the nation, Israel became a nation again in 1948. The prophecies saying that they would come back into the land, they would plant the land, they would work the land, the land would blossom once again. There's a partial fulfillment that we have seen in the last 60 years as Israel has become a nation and the land has bloomed and they are planted there. And Amos predicts that once they come back into the land, they will not be plucked out again. But we also know that the Old Testament as well as the New Testament talks about that time of seven years of tribulation that will take place preceding the second coming of Jesus Christ. And in that seven years of tribulation that is going to be Israel and the Jews that are going to go through a tremendously difficult time. The book of Daniel calls it Jacob's trouble. And at the end of that seven-year tribulation, as Zechariah chapter 14 tells us, that the nations of the world will surround Jerusalem, that Jerusalem will be a cup of trembling to all of the nations, and that the nations will seek to destroy Jerusalem and destroy Israel, but then God's going to step in. And that's what's being said here in this verse. When you are in verse 30, distress, and all these things come upon you in the latter days... Talking about the last days when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers. So what's going to happen at that time is is that Joel chapter 2 tells us that they will blow the trumpet. There will be a national fast. They'll seek the Lord. The Lord will hear them. They will recognize that Jesus truly is their Messiah. As God's spirit is poured out on them, their eyes are opened up. Paul talks about that in uh, the book of Romans and in that day all of Israel will be saved and what will happen is that Jesus Christ will come back in the second coming of Jesus Christ and he will touch down on the Mount of Olives we know that he will destroy those armies that have surrounded Jerusalem it will be the judgment of the nations that will take place at that time we also know that there will be you and I who were raptured before the tribulation period that are going to come back with the Lord riding on white horses Revelation chapter 19 talks about when Jesus Christ comes back in the second coming that the armies of heaven are going to follow after him. That's you and I. But you know what's the cool thing about being in the army of the Lord at that time? We don't have to fight. He's going to do the fighting. He's simply going to speak and out of his mouth is going to come a sword. The word of God is like a two-edged sword. He's simply going to speak. Those nations will be armies destroyed that will turn and try to fight him and he will judge the nations. We will see that the Lord will establish his kingdom for a thousand years, and we're going to rule and reign with him. And then also there's the restoration of Israel. That's the covenant that's being spoken of here. The Lord said that I'm going to give you this land, and it's a perpetual covenant. And it's going to be something that I'm going to keep. And you see all those promises of the Old Testament here and through the prophets, particularly when you get into Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, that speaks about that final restoration of Israel. That's why in the book of Acts chapter 1, when the Lord ascended, that it was the apostles, the disciples that were asking, are you going to restore Israel at this time? They were expecting that. And so here we see that that um, prophecy is given to them. Even um, 3,500 years ago, it was given to them before they came into the promised land. In verse 32, Uh, one other thing I'd like to mention. I do want to mention that God is a merciful God. And he says, when you call out to me, I will hear you. And it does remind me so much of Jeremiah chapter 29, when Judah did go into captivity. And Jeremiah writes a letter to the captives that were in captivity in Babylon. And he's writing a letter to them because they're wondering, is God through with us? Is God done with us as a nation? We have sin, we're off in captivity. And Jeremiah would write them a letter and said, this is what the Lord says to you. For I know my thoughts, I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me. With all your heart, I will be found by you. Just as he says here in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And I want to say this. If there's anybody that's here tonight, and you feel like that, you know what, Lord, I've blown it, and I've sinned, and I've fallen short of what you want me to be, I know that. And sometimes we can wonder, Lord, are you done with me? Are you through with me? I want you to know this. That the Lord is merciful. And as you turn to Him, and as you repent, and as you call upon Him, His love is there, His forgiveness is merciful. He hears you, desiring to draw you to Himself. And so He says, I'm a merciful God. When you call upon Me, I will hear you. In verse 32, For ask now concerning the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth, and asked from one in heaven to the other whether any great thing like this has happened or anything like it has been heard. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and live? Or did God ever try to go and take for himself a nation from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great terror and according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God. There is none other beside him. And so what we see here is being told to them, has anyone else, any other nation experienced what you guys have? The, The provision, the power of the Lord. How he brought you out of a nation that was mightier than you. And you've seen the signs and the wonders. Go ask. It's almost like the Lord is saying, go ask those other nations. See if their gods have ever done anything like that for them. That you may know that I alone in the Lord your God. I alone am God. There is no other. And I pray for you and for me that as people look at our lives, that again it would be a witness to others that they would say, man, you are a changed person. You are someone that is different than you were before. That's what being born again is all about. A regeneration of heart. And they can say that, you know what? The world's philosophy and the world's ways didn't do that. What did that? Well, it's God, the true God that changed my heart and saved me and gave me a heart of love and a heart of compassion. And many of us, we are that witness to others. Before we came to the Lord, we were involved in sin. We didn't care about people. We, you know, were involved in corrupting, uh, corruptible things and stuff like that. But God has made us new. We're a new creature in Christ, and people can see that. And people will ask us, what makes you new? There's something different about you because of God working. Because as much of a miracle that it was that he performed there in bringing them out of Egypt and parting the Red Sea and the pillar of fire and the manna that came down and the water from the rock and the, and the Lord speaking from him from Mount Sinai, all the miracles they saw. You know what the greatest miracle of all is? is you and I. It really is. A heart that has been changed. A heart that has been changed because we've been born again by the Spirit of God. And it's a witness to others that they can see that there is none other than the God that created you and me, that saved you and I through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so verse 36, Out of heaven, you let, He let you hear His voice that He might instruct you on earth. He showed you His great fire, and you, you heard His words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them, and he brought you out of Egypt with his presence and with his mighty power. Notice in verse 37 that he says that he loved your fathers. Now, what was it that we read there in, I believe it was uh, chapter, um, chapter 1 of Deuteronomy, is we read in chapter 1 that when they were fearful, their fathers, and would not go into the promised land, what was it that they were complaining What was it that they were saying? They were saying that God hates us. God hates us has brought us out into the wilderness. And here the Lord is saying, I loved your fathers. And I was with them in their presence. And he's going to say to them, know that I love you. And I pray for all of us here tonight that we would never doubt the love of God for us. That he loves you unconditionally, supremely. He loves you right where you're at. He loves you too much to leave you where you're at, and me as well. So he desires to continue to do work in us, right? But never doubt his love. And and never come to that point and believe in the lie of the enemy who will come and say, God's so disgusted with you. He doesn't want anything to do with you that he hates you or whatever. It was a lie that their fathers believed. And I pray that you would never fall into that trap, that the Lord loves you. And he desires for you to experience fully his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy and his goodness. You turn to him. And the reason that he desires for us to turn away from sin and repent from it is because of his love for us. And I've told you this verse, but I think it's a verse that we need to continue to get down into our hearts. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, I bet you can quote it. That this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, for his commandments are not burdensome. And every commandment that God gives to you and to me is an expression of his love to you, right? He doesn't give you his commandments to be burdensome or to hurt you or because he hates you or because he wants to put you in bondage. It's because he wants you to be free. Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, that you can experience that abundant life. That you can experience the joy of the Lord, that you can have the strength of the Lord, that you can walk in His wisdom, that you can walk in His understanding. So, every commandment that He gives to you and I is an expression of His love. So, every time that we talk to somebody, we give them the truth of God's Word, we give them the commandments and God's ways. And in you doing that, you are expressing God's love to them, you are showing them God's love. And that's important for us to understand. And if anybody ever comes along and tries to get you to do something contrary or that is against God's love, they're not showing God's love to you. If they're trying to get you to compromise, if they're trying to get you involved in immorality of any sort or whatever it might be, that they are not showing love to you. So this is the love of God that you keep his commandments for his commandments are not burdensome. He wants you to be free, walking in that liberty, means just living for the Christ and then walking in His ways because His ways are good. And that's what I pray that we understand. Sometimes I run into Christians that think, oh, you know what? His commandments are burdensome. They're not burdensome. Or God's just a killjoy. He doesn't want me to enjoy life. You want to enjoy life and have true satisfaction and fulfillment and real purpose in life? Then love the Lord. And follow after Him. Because He will do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And He will do more with our lives than we can ever do in our own flesh, or our own direction, or in our own ways. And so God is so good and so faithful, and that's what He's saying to them in this. And so verse 38, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in to give you their land as an inheritance as it is this day. Therefore, nor this day, that consider it in your heart The Lord himself is God in heaven above, and on the earth beneath there is no other. So again, he's saying, consider it in your heart. Have it in your heart. That's the real key, because whatever is in your heart is going to be worked out in your life. And he's going to say the greatest commandment in chapter 6 is what? The great Shemal, right? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So love him with your heart is a key for you and for me, a key for us in walking in the ways of the Lord. But also, again, verse 39 here, as well as what we saw here um, in verse uh, 35, or good verses to show others, to say that there are many gods, or to show the Mormons. The Mormons like to say that they can progress and become gods themselves. That's part of their theology. And you can show them there is no other God. There's one God in heaven and above and on the earth beneath. And as you go into the book of Isaiah, you see the same thing that God declares. In Isaiah, I believe, chapter 44 and 45, there is no other God. There is no God before me. There shall be no other God after me. So this is something that he will remind them of constantly. In verse 40, you shall therefore keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and your children after you, that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord your God has given you for all time and so a way for us to experience again just a good life is to walk in his ways and it will be well with us it doesn't mean that we won't go through hard times or difficulties or challenges but we know that the lord is with us and it will go well with us so a life that goes well is a life that follows after the lord and then we teach that to our children as we're going to see that being emphasized once again Verse 41, Then Moses set apart three cities on this side of the Jordan towards the rising of the sun, that the manslayer might flee there who kills his neighbor unintentionally, without having hated him in time past, and that by fleeing to one of these cities he might live. Bezar in the wilderness of the plateau of the Reubenites, Ramoth and Gilead for the Gadites, and Golan of Bashan for the Masonites. And so again, you recall in Numbers chapter 35, that the Levites were going to have 42 cities given to them all throughout the land. Six of those cities were to be cities of refuge. Three here that are specifically told to us on the east side of the Jordan River. There will be another three that will be listed on the west side of the Jordan River when they go in to take the land of Canaan. And again, the whole idea of the city of refuge was that if you accidentally killed somebody, there was an accident, say, you're out in the field and you swing your shovel and you hit somebody in the head, and they end up dying from it. You could flee to that city of refuge. They were spread out. There was no more than a day's journey for anybody to go to. And in that city, you were safe from the manslayer or the avenger of blood. Again, remember, they didn't have a police force. They didn't have district attorneys and all of that. So if you killed somebody, it was the avenger of blood, the nearest kin. He would come after you, and he would put you to death. But if it was an accident, you could go to the city of refuge. You were safe there from the avenger of blood until it was heard by the elders. And if it was found that it was an accident, then you had to stay in that city of refuge, and you were safe there. And if you were found that it was premeditated murder, that you intentionally killed somebody, then there was capital punishment that would be that punishment given to you. So the city of refuge on the east side of the Jordan River. And then verse 44, now this is the law which Moses set before the children of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which Moses spoke to the children of Israel after they came out of Egypt. On this side of the Jordan, in the valley opposite Beth-peor, in the land of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon, whom Moses and the children of Israel defeated after they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land, the land of Og, king of Bashan, two kings of the Amorite, who were on this side of the Jordan, towards the rising of the sun, from Arorah, which is in the bank of the river Arnon, even to Mount Sihon, which is Hermon. So Mount Hermon is in the very northern part of the nation, and Mount Hermon is a very high mountain. And just for a little reference point and a little side note for you, Mount Hermon is where the Mount of Transfiguration happened, where Jesus was transfigured and Peter, James and John saw it, and Peter would say, hey, it's good for us to be here. Let's build three tabernacles. That was on Mount Hermon. That was a high mountain. You go there today, and it's the highest point in Israel. They even got a ski area up there because they get snow up there. Also, they got a big military base where they look right down into downtown Damascus, Syria. So anyway, Mount Hermon is that northern point there and then all on the east side and all of the plain the east side, verse 49 of the Jordan as far as the sea of the Arabah below the slopes of Pishka. And so Moses is going to teach them the law of God on the east side of the Jordan River but will take, they will, the law of God into the promised land. And again, the Lord desires for us to experience, to walk in that abundant life, that good life that he has for us. And as we do, is going to include walking in that obedience, and that's what he's saying to them. So in chapter 5, we're going to go through it just for a few minutes and see how far we get. And Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments, which I speak to you are hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. The Lord, our God, made a covenant with us in Horeb, or that is Sinai. The Lord, verse 3, did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today, all of us who are alive. The Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. I stood between the Lord and you at that time, and I declared to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire. You did not go up to the mountain. And he said, so the Ten Commandments are going to be reviewed. We'll go through it very quickly again because it's a reiteration here of Exodus chapter 19 and chapter 20. Chapter 19, where he brought the children of Israel there to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, said, prepare yourself. I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to give you my law. And so that's where God would speak from the mountain, and he would give them the law of God. The people were terrified because it was an awesome sight, the smoke, the, the lightnings, the thunders, the voice of God, but also those commandments written on two tablets of stone. And so as we go through these commandments here very quickly, I am the Lord your God, verse 6, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage." You shall have no other gods before me. So commandment number one, of course, is that you have no other God before me. See, here's the thing for us. God demands more than God just to be added to our lives. We don't just add Jesus to our lives. We give him our lives, okay? There's a big difference. We give him our lives. And we're to have no other gods before him. And you shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquities of the Father upon the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me by showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So the second commandment is make no carved images Don't bow down to them, and so don't have those idols, those other gods before me. And, of course, they ended up getting uh, later on in their history where they did bow down to those carved images. For you and for me, we may not have an idol sitting up on our our mantle that we worship, but if there is anything that has priority over our love for the Lord and our, our devotion to the Lord, it ends up becoming an idol. Anything that we turn to in our hour of need, that we trust in, that we put more devotion to, that has priority over our love with the Lord, it becomes an idol. And we live in a nation where there's a lot of things that can really grip our hearts and get the love of our hearts. And we need to be careful. Possessions, hobbies, whatever it might be. Make sure again that the Lord, that we give Him our lives and all of our hearts to Him and have no other gods before Him. And then he says, For I in the Lord am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the Father's Upon the children to the third and fourth generation, those who hate me. Again, to remind you what is being said here. What the Lord is saying is I'm going to keep convicting it. I'm going to visit the iniquities to the third and fourth generation. In other words, my law doesn't change. And I'll keep convicting you and your children and your grandchildren and every generation of sin. That's what he's saying here. I'm going to visit the iniquities. Now, there are those who will come along Take this verse, completely take it out of context, and they'll start talking about generational curses. A matter of fact, I talked to somebody on the phone that wasn't long ago, just about a couple months ago, and they were telling me about somebody they were concerned about, and I asked them, I said, you know, what's going on? Well, I believe that they have generational curse. And I said, what do you mean by that? Well, the scripture says that um, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, putting the iniquity the fathers to the children third fourth generation i said that's not what the scripture says doesn't say that he puts the iniquities on he says he visits the iniquity and what he's saying he's convicting you of sin now i understand that we can learn and we pick up things and it can be bad things from our parents and our grandparents but the lord isn't the one that has the godfather mentality of i'm going to get you because of what your father did and your grandfather did and i'm going to curse you because of what your father did and your grandfather did and it's in the book of Ezekiel that we see that Ezekiel would say, the Lord says that the Proverbs that you guys have, that it's our father's fault and we grind our teeth and we're in the mess that we're in because of our fathers. He says "That's no more is to be uttered in the land. In other words, you are responsible for your sin. And you're going to stand before the Lord for your sin. Now for you and I who are in Christ Jesus, Jesus took the judgment for you and for me. And we are free from all of that. By the power of the Holy Spirit. So generational curses is something that is not biblical. And there are those who will come in and they'll say, Well, you're a sinner because of generational curses. And you're cursed because of your dad and grandfather. Again, I understand that the home we grew up in can affect us a whole lot. But when we come to Jesus Christ, we're free. We're free from the penalty of sin. And we, as we submit our lives to him, free from the power of sin. And we are responsible our conduct and what we do before the Lord. So don't grind your teeth. The Lord will give you the power to be free from those things. And I don't want to minimize hurt that perhaps you've gone through. Or a difficult childhood or a difficult home you grew up. I understand that those things can be harmful and hurtful. I don't want to minimize that. But you are free. Do you understand that? You are free to live for Christ and they'll have a heart of love and to forgive and to move on and to put that stuff under the blood of Jesus Christ. And to live for Him. And feel the conviction of the Lord when we do sin because the conviction of the Lord is always to draw us to Christ, not to push us away. What pushes us away is the condemnation of the enemy. And so he's going to visit the iniquity. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His law doesn't change. His word doesn't change. He will keep convicting generation after generation. That's what he's being said. And have mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Verse 11, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And so we shall not do that. And the Lord will hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Verse 12, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as your Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath. of the Lord your God in it you shall do no work, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger, who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servants may rest as well as you? And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And so, the Sabbath law given to them. Again, we talked about the Sabbath and the church and what it means. The church is not under the Sabbath law don't have time to go into it tonight but we talked about it exodus chapter 20 as we've gone through the book of exodus very clearly we know that paul would say that one man esteems another uh, one day above another one man esteems every day like you be convinced in your own mind if you hold the principle of the seventh sabbath day a day where you rest in the lord and you reflect in the lord praise god that's a good thing but we are not under the sabbath law let no one judge you concerning sabbaths is what paul would say in colossians chapter 2 you can get those studies and um, you can look at that again very carefully we covered that very extensively honor your father and your mother as the lord your god has commanded you that your days may be long that it may be well with you in the land which the lord your god has given you paul would say in ephesians 6 he would repeat this that we're to honor mother and father do not murder do not commit adultery jesus would give the true meaning of that right he says, if you're angry with a brother in your heart, without a cause, you've committed murder. If you lust after another in your heart, you committed adultery. You do not steal. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that we are to steal no longer, but to work with our hands. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And what that means is, is you're not to be gossiping, bearing false witness, slander, lies, gossip, t- tale bearing, You know what tale bearing is? Is when you repeat what is said over and over again. I'm going to tell them, I'm going to tell them, I'm going to tell them, I'm going to tell them. That's tail-bearing. It's all spoken against in the New Testament. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house. His field is male servants, his female servants, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Do not covet. That's one of the big ten, but I think one of the things that we can do in our society is we can covet. I want this what they have. I want that what they have. And we can covet. And Jesus specifically warned his disciples, beware of covetousness, and we need to beware of it. And these are the words the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain. From the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. So it was that when you heard the voice of the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Surely the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that the Lord speaks with man, yet he still lives. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more than we shall die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? That must have been just an awesome, awesome thing. As they're there at the base of the mountain and hearing the voice of God and and then the thunders and the lightnings, and I think it was the divine lightning and thunderings that was going on. And the mountain shook and smoke came from the mountain. Again, telling us of Exodus chapter 19 and 20 what took place. You go near and hear all the Lord your God may say and tell us all that the Lord your God says to you and we will hear it and do it. So Moses is saying, the people said, Moses, you go up on the mountain. This is too much for us. So they were learning the awesomeness of God and, and his power. They were learning to fear the Lord, that, that, to revere the Lord. And we worship an awesome, powerful God, don't we? And so Moses, you go up on the mountain. And, of course, Hebrew tells us that Moses was terrified. In verse 28, Then the Lord heard the voice of the words, When you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice the words of the people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Go and say to them, Return to your tents. But as for you, stand here by me, and I will speak to you in all the commandments, the statutes and the judgments, which you shall teach them, and they may observe them in the land which I have given them to possess. Therefore you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you, and you shall not turn to the right or to the left, and you shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live and it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. So what's the main lesson that we've learned tonight? That it may be well with you. How? Stay close to the Lord. Walk in His ways. And do it with your heart. Having a heart for the Lord as we see here in verse 29, I believe. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments. Have a heart for Jesus. And Father... As we close, and we're just going to close in prayer, and um, we'll end the service, but Father, we do come. And um, Lord, I thank you for those tonight. As if we've looked at this, and some very important lessons and application to be made. So Father, we want to come to you tonight. And Lord, while we have a few minutes in prayer, because I know that you're not done tonight, And Father, that you desire to, to Lord, speak to our hearts. That, Lord, to remind us that you are a merciful and good God, a loving God. And we should never doubt the love that you have for us. And I pray if there's anybody here tonight, that they have doubted your love. that Lord, you must not love me. You love everybody else, but not me or whatever doubts that might be that they would be dispelled right now because your word clearly says that you love us